Welcome to Question Period. Hope you're all doing okay after another very difficult week. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on our program, gun ban. Effective immediately, it is no longer permitted to buy, sell, transport, import, or use military-grade assault weapons in this country. The federal government follows through on a commitment to ban what they call assault weapons, but what guns actually fall onto the list? Will these new measures really keep gun violence down? And why didn't the government debate this in Parliament first? The Public Safety Minister Bill Blair joins us with the details. And then, race to recovery? COVID-19 will continue to threaten us for many months to come. But with care and with common sense, We'll be able to move steadily and safely through the stages of our relaunch strategy and begin the process of rebuilding our wonderful province together. Provinces are moving ahead with plans to reopen their economies even as hundreds of new COVID-19 cases are still being announced daily. Is it too soon to reopen in provinces like Alberta, Ontario and Quebec? And with the added challenge of low oil prices, will it take Alberta longer to recover than the rest of the country? Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney joins us and then lost at sea. Yesterday, a Royal Canadian Navy helicopter on a NATO mission carrying six members of the Canadian Armed Forces went down with all hands in the Ionian Sea off the coast of Greece. What went wrong during a NATO training accident that saw six Canadian service members lose their lives? Was it human error? Did the helicopter malfunction? Retired Vice Admiral and former Vice Chief of the Defence Staff Mark Norman joins us to offer his view. Plus, former interim Conservative leader Ronna Ambrose weighs in on the latest details on the reignited race to replace Andrew Scheer as Conservative leader. Are social Conservatives now the kingmakers in that party? This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Today, we are closing the market for military-grade assault weapons in Canada. We are banning 1,500 models and variants of these firearms by way of regulations. These weapons were designed for one purpose and one purpose only, to kill the largest number of people in the shortest amount of time. There is no use and no place for such weapons in Canada. Twelve days after the worst mass murder in Canadian history, the Liberal government bans a huge swath of semi-automatic weapons in Canada, including the weapons allegedly used to kill 22 people in that rampage. It is now prohibited to use, sell or import over 1,500 different types of what the government calls assault-style firearms. Current gun owners will have a two-year amnesty to comply to the new rules. But will this ban really reduce gun violence if many criminals are still able to get weapons illegally? And how does the government define these banned weapons? Joining me now is the Public Safety Minister, Bill Blair. Minister, always good to have you on the program and hope you and your family are well. Let's talk about the details. Mass shootings, like we saw in Nova Scotia, are horrific, tragic and terrifying. But the fact is they account for less than 1% of the firearms deaths in Canada. And as far as we know, the guns used in the Nova Scotia mass murder were purchased in the U.S. and smuggled here. So to begin with, would this ban that you've introduced had any impact on that situation? And the answer to that is yes, Evan. 
Uh, the, the, uh, you know, I'm not, not going to discuss, it's up to the Mounties to disclose the weapons uh, and, and their origins in, in the course of their investigation, but I think when that information is available, Canadians will understand its relevance to the, the steps we have taken today. And I want them also to remember its, its relevance to, to other tragic crimes in ca Canada. These are the type of weapons that were used at Ecole Polytechnique to, to murder 14 innocent women, that were used in, in Quebec when, at, a, at a mosque to kill six worshippers. Um, the same type of weapons that were used to kill in, in Moncton the RCMP officers or Fredericton police officers in Fredericton or the RCMP in Meyerthorpe. You know, we have had far too many tragic incidents in this country where weapons that were not designed for the purposes for which weapons are allowed in this country, which is sporting and hunting activity. These weapons were designed for military use. They were designed for soldiers to kill soldiers. Henceforth, not a single more one of these weapons can ever be sold legally in Canada. And so as many as we have today, that's the max. And, and now we will begin the hard work in Parliament of bringing forward legislation because we want to be able to deal with the, those weapons that do exist in our society safely, responsibly, and effectively. And Parliament will decide how those weapons but will eventually be disposed of. Minister, your government, the Prime Minister, you, you keep using this term military assault weapons designed to kill people. The point is that's not really a legal term, as you know. The actual term are semi-automatic weapons. We already have designations, restricted, non-restricted, and prohibited. We also already have limits on magazine capacity between five and ten rounds. So I'm just trying to figure out, you're using terms that I, I understand that you're, they sound terrible, but how are you actually defining what is banned? Is it, are you banning all semi-automatic weapons? No, we, we, you'll notice on the list the weapons that we are banning. First of all, all of them have in their, in their origins and in design military use. But they are all semi-automatic. They are all capable of rapid sustained fire. Not automatic fire, but rapid sustained fire. They're all capable of taking large capacity magazines. And they all use center fire ammunition, not 22 rim fire ammunition, but ammunition either 223 NATO rounds or higher uh, capacity of rounds. And, and, and so those are the weapons that have made this list of prohibited weapons. They, they are not designed and used for hunting, and they're not designed and used for sports shooting. They were designed and they have been used to kill people. But a lot and of so those, are, but, but you know, sports shooters will say a lot of these are used in sports shooting, and we are. I'm just trying to figure out, we already have limits on magazine capacity. We already have limits on restricted, non-restricted, and prohibited weapons. I'm just, how did you draw the distinction? Because I think definitions are really important to figure out what are going to be guns that you will see and what you won't see. Well, some, some of the weapons have been, have been prohibited by characteristic. Grenade launchers, for example, 50 caliber sniper rifles. We, we are prohibiting those weapons because, quite frankly, they have no recreational value in this country. But we also know that the other weapons are designed for, for the use, not in recreational purposes. And, 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 and let, me, let me be clear. I understand that some people find recreational pleasure in utilizing in, and, and working with these firearms. But the reality is that was, their design was not, in, in its origin, for recreation. It was for soldiers to kill soldiers. And unfortunately and tragically, it's been used by people who were intent on mass murder in Canada and around the world. Why not focus more specifically on the illegal importation of handguns, guns and gangs? I know that your government 
committed $320-odd million, but that was over five years, and only about $86 million over five years was to stop handguns at the border. You and I both, though, that's a drop in the bucket, $17 million a year, really, $86 million over five years. Why Evan, not spend more money stopping illegal Evan, guns that are smuggled over the border? Evan, and perhaps you missed the rest of our, uh, our, our announcement on, on Friday or the platform commitment that we've made. But we have said that there are a number of very important and, and invaluable things that we intend to do. On Friday, we did fulfill our promise to, to make prohibited military-style assault weapons in this country because there's no place for those weapons. But we have also indicated that we, at the very first opportunity, will bring forward legislation that will enable us to take far more effective action with new authorities for the police, but also new offenses and new penalties. For those who smuggle firearms across our border into this country, for those who steal them, to make sure that, they, that we have stronger storage regulations and laws so that the weapons are far more difficult to steal, and for those who traffic in weapons, to buy them legally and then sell them illegally, we are bringing forward measures to deal with that. It requires legislation, and as soon as Parliament resumes, we'll take those steps. Minister, what about grandfathering for two years? There's this, there's this two-year amnesty. What are you telling people who have these guns that clearly will not... Uh, they don't like what you're doing. They, they own these guns. Why give them a two-year amnesty? You saw in New Zealand after they had a mass shooting, they banned a lot of guns. They had a buyback. The buyback, I think the take-up is less than 10%. So explain what the grandfather clause means and why the two-year amnesty. Yeah, the amnesty was put in place because we recognize the Canadians purchased these guns legally. And we've made a change in regulation that now makes those weapons prohibited, but we were not going to put those Canadians who purchased those guns legally in a position of criminal liability. And so we have put an amnesty in place for two years. That amnesty period, it's, it's a non-permissive amnesty that, that says they can't shoot them, they can't go hunting or, or target shooting with it, um, they, they won't be able to use it, they won't be able to sell it. But we did not want, because they, they were in legal lawful possession of them, to, to put them into criminal jeopardy. And so there is an amnesty period. And in that amnesty period, we have committed to bring forward legislation. Legislation that Parliament will make a determination on how we can safely, effectively, and responsibly address those weapons in our society. And we have said we will introduce a buyback program. But that requires legislation, and it requires a budget. And Parliament will make that decision when Parliament resumes. Uh all right, last question to you, Minister Blair. How do we know if this is successful? If I speak to you in a year or two years and the number of uh, homicides that are gun-related has not gone down, do I say, great, you found a solution to the wrong problem. The, re the real problem is handguns smuggled in from the U.S. You've solved the problem that doesn't exist. How what is the metric of success here, sir? Gavin, I've spent my entire life trying to reduce gun violence, and I think there are a number of very important ways to do that. Restricting the access, the supply of guns, is an important metric for us, and we are taking steps to do that. We also have a lot of work to do to reduce the demand for those guns, and we are prepared to take that action as well. Ultimately, our success will be measured on what does not happen. And so if, if we do not have any more of these instances where someone gains access to a weapon that was designed to kill people and then chooses to go out and do so, and we're going to make it far more difficult for a person to gain these weapons, first of all, by prohibiting their sale and use in Canada, and secondly, by investing in, and taking stronger measures to prevent them from being smuggled, stolen, or, or diverted and, and, and criminally trafficked in this country. Bill Blair, i got to leave it there. Minister, I appreciate you joining us this morning. Thanks so much. Coming up on the program, provinces are eager to get their economies up and running again, but how soon is too soon? 
And with the added blow of low oil prices, how can Alberta improve its fiscal outlook? The Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney, joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. So golf courses were the first thing to reopen yesterday as Alberta begins its multi-stage process to relaunch the economy. Medical services like non-essential surgeries, dentists, uh, physiotherapists will resume on Monday with other businesses following suit over the next few weeks and months. But look, Alberta has had a brutal time, still seeing a high number of new coronavirus cases. They got the collapse of the price of oil, the flooding in Fort Mac. Are they moving too soon to reopen? Let's talk about all that and the federal government's gun ban. The Premier Jason Kenney joins us now. Premier Kenney, I uh, hope you and your loved ones are doing well, and I know your province is going through just an absolutely brutal time. Um, just let's start on the reopening. A lot of folks are saying it's just too soon. It will be a setback and a second ways. How do you open golf courses when you're still seeing more new cases of COVID? Well, Evan, until there is an effective widespread vaccine or herd immunity, there will continue to be new cases of COVID in Alberta and everywhere across the world. The question is not eliminating the risk because that is effectively impossible. It is managing the risk. And uh, while we are getting new cases, that's part, partly the new cases here are uh, larger than other provinces because of our effective testing. We've been leading not just Canada, but the world in the per capita incidence of COVID-19 testing. So we do reveal more cases, but here's the good news. Far, far fewer of those cases relatively end up in the hospital. So we've had very low levels of hospitalization and ICU admission. Uh, a fraction of the ratio, per capita ratio of hospitalizations in Ontario, Quebec, or European countries, some U.S. states. So we're so far below the maximum capacity of our health system and our models, we feel that we can now prudently move forward with a right. cautious and gradual reopening. But, but Premier, one of the issues all leaders deal with, uh, have to deal with this and this, and, and there's no sugarcoating. This is a really brutally difficult decision, balancing the health of, of your citizens with the health of the economy, which also is is critical, is how do you prove the negative? For example, maybe you don't have people in the ICU beds and the hospitalization, which is good, because of all the social distance and unleashing golf courses and other things, maybe that triggers a second wave. How are you sure that won't happen? Well, we're gonna monitor the numbers very closely. And if we do see a significant spike, particularly in hospitalizations, then we'll slow down the, the uh, reopen. We've been very clear about that. Uh, we're going to be, and I said to Albertans in my televised address uh, three weeks ago that we can't let the virus loose in a way that would force us to just shut things down even more st uh, strictly, uh, which would do even more damage. So obviously we have to balance these things out, but taking an absolute zero risk, shut it all down until there's a vaccine sometimes in, sometime in 2021. In my view, that would be your irresponsible. So, so what's the speed? I mean, we're, I think we're all in the same case. You can't, you can't shut things down forever, but the, the, the politics comes with when. Quebec, they're going to let by May, 8, or May 11th and the May 18th in Montreal, elementary and primary kids back to school. Do you think that's a good idea? Well, I, I think as long as they do it safely, they can minimize the risk. And we do know that, uh, that uh, children have a extremely low level of uh, vulnerability to COVID-19. Um, here in Alberta, we are taking a, slight, a different approach. We're going to allow limited reopenings on a trial basis. Some individual uh, schools might come to us or school boards and, and we might allow for very limited reopenings. But as a general rule, we won't be reopening the schools until later this year. 
Um, look, every jurisdiction is going to take a slightly different approach, and there's something good in that. We can learn from each other. Are you concerned that people are going to get confused? And you, you use the phrase, uh, phrase, the letter rip. Like, some people are going to say, wow, look, they're golfing in Alberta. They're doing different things in Saskatchewan. They're doing it in B.C. There's a patchwork going on. Some people said, this is all overblown. Screw it. I'm just going to do my own thing. Doesn't that concern you? Well, it does concern us. And, and uh, But, you know, I think the vast majority of people are responsible and they've learned uh, habits. They, I think people have internalized the washing the hands, the personal hygiene and, and, and all of it. Um, and you know what, at the end of the day, we are a free society. We, we are not the People's Republic of China that goes and uh, literally uh, welds people's doors shuts in their apartment buildings. And so we have to balance freedom, personal responsibility with a public health imperative, and I think we're doing pretty well, certainly here in Alberta, on that. All right, just on that, you, you talk about uh, China. Uh, you know the Conservative leadership race has kicked off. I know you're not running in this thing, but it's back in. The Conservative Party asked Derek Sloan, who is one of the contestants, uh, contenders, to apologize to our Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, for asking, does she work for Canada or does she work for China? Not a criticism of her, but questioning her loyalty. He refused. Should he apologize for that? Does that attitude belong in the Conservative Party of Canada? Well, I, I think that was an, an offensive statement. Obviously, she works for Canada. I, I have had some differences with some of the uh, uh, positions that she's taken. I, I've been clear about those. I, but I, we, we should all focus together on fighting and defeating the virus and protecting our economy. And we can deal with lessons learned when this is all over. Um, I think there's going to be a great uh, a, need, a need for great accountability for the World Health Organization and the People's Republic of China, uh, and some public health officials who accepted um, inaccurate information that put us at a higher risk. A lot, uh, just two quick things. There are actually some people are talking about suing China to compensate uh, uh, for this. The Chinese deny that. They said that they, they acted as quickly as possible. There's lots of criticism on that. Would you think that China should be financially liable for the virus that has hit the rest of the world? Well, I think they are responsible. Listen, when they blocked travel from out of uh, Wuhan to the rest of China, they did not block travel from Wuhan to the rest of the world. They wanted to protect the rest of, of China from uh, the, the virus while they were still uh, locking up uh, whistleblowers and claiming there was no evidence of human-to-human -human transmission um, while they were allowing the virus to spread from Wuhan to the rest of the world. There must be some accountability for that. Uh, and uh, we, we, we can't forget about that. When this is all over, there must be some accountability for it. Uh, Premier, there is uh, the Liberal government just passed a, a ban on what they call assault rifles. Over 1,500 different assault weapons are, as of now, banned. Uh, there is a two-year amnesty, of course. Uh, what has been your reaction? They campaigned on this. After what happened in Nova Scotia, they say we can no longer delay. What's your take on this? I, I think, uh, first of all, this is regrettable timing. Uh, we should all be focused on combating the pandemic. Um, I, I've got to really question the timing. Secondly, if, if the concern was really to prevent gun crime, then, to, then stop the importation of illegal guns from the United States the significant majority of firearms that are used in the Commission of Crimes in Canada, have, especially handguns, for example, have been imported illegally from the United States. So instead of spending an enormous amount of resources to chase after legal law-abiding Canadians who are collectors or, or hunters, how about 
putting those resources instead on the mm. interdiction of contraband firearms in the country? And how about bringing back the tough mandatory minimum prison sentences the Harper government introduced uh, for firearms offenses? So I, I think it's they're getting uh, they're missing the target, so to speak. Jason Kenney, I appreciate it very much. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Evan. All right, coming up, six Canadian Forces members die after their helicopter crashes following a NATO training mission. Is Canada's fleet of helicopters, they only went into operation in 2018, really safe? Retired Vice Admiral Mark Norman, the former Vice Chief of the Defence Staff, joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. We have put the fleet uh, across Canada uh, and overseas, clearly, in an operational pause. It's not a grounding, it's an operational pause uh, until the commander of the RCAF and his flight safety team uh, can determine uh, the next steps. Um, we will try to get back to business uh, with those helicopters as quickly as we can, but we have to rule out that there's a fleet-wide problem, uh, and we're going to do that as quickly as we can. So Canada's new fleet of Cyclone helicopters are now essentially grounded. The technical term is an operational pause after that tragic accident that left six Canadian Forces members dead. The Cyclone had just finished a NATO training exercise and was returning to the frigate HMCS Fredericton when it lost contact with air crew and crashed into the Ionian Sea between Greece and Italy. Now the cause of the crash is still unknown. As we wait for the National Research Council to go through the cockpit voice and data recorder that have already been recovered from the scene of the accident. But could the helicopter, which only came into service about two years ago, have malfunctioned? Was it human error? And what will the consequences be for the entire fleet? Joining us now is retired Vice Admiral and the former Vice Chief of the Defence Staff, Mark Norman. Sir, before we begin, I know, uh, first of all, I hope you and your family are well in the midst of the COVID crisis. You're the former head of the Navy and the VCDS. Uh, so this hits very close to home. What were your thoughts when you heard about the accident? Well, good morning, Evan. Um, obviously, like uh, most Canadians, uh, it, it was uh, tragic. It was, I was in shock. And uh, my, my thoughts and prayers go out to uh, the families and uh, the ship's company, Fredericton, and the broader uh, maritime helicopter community who are, are, are truly reeling uh, with, with the, the shock and, and impact of uh, this terrible accident. Tell me, we've now got some details. Uh, uh, General Vance talked about the debris field. We've heard there's a small contained debris field. We heard the chopper went down about two kilometers from Fredericton. They had time there. A flare went up. Um, we don't know a lot of details, but you know, you know these helicopters extremely well. W what went through your mind in terms of what you think could have brought down a, essentially a brand new helicopter? Well, I think uh, it's interesting um, that uh, already so early in the process, uh, we have some indications of um, both a lack of information and potentially, um, I, it's not conflicting information, it's just uh, different uh, interpretations of that limited information that's been made available. And I think that really points to why um, we have to be very careful um, and that we don't try to uh, interpret um, what, what happened. Uh, they're bringing in a team of experts and we can talk about that if you want, but uh, they're going to look at everything associated with this. I, you know, fundamentally, um, something like this happens because uh, there's a bizarre environmental situation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, there's some sort of mechanical problem. Uh, there's uh, human factors or 
I mean, it, 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 there's uh, some sort of um, um, military action. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the case in this situation. We've had reports that the weather uh, ha has been very good and, and was uh, at the time of the incident. So I think we're down to two possible scenarios, some sort of mechanical issue or some sort of um, uh, human factor um, issue. Yeah, this is a look. Uh we don't know what it is, but this was supposed to be the state-of-the-art helicopter. But you know better than anyone, it's got a long and troubled procurement history. I remember Peter McKay called it the worst procurement in history back in 2012. Uh, does the military and do you have confidence in the Cyclone helicopter? Because we know there's been an operational pause now. Yeah, I, I think it's important that we not try and conflate the, um, the history of the procurement with the capability of the platform itself. Um, the, McKay may well have been right, but that doesn't mean that it's not an exceptional um, piece of equipment and that it uh, has the full confidence of, uh, of, of those people who have been flying it up to this moment. Um, by all accounts, uh, the aircraft's been performing uh, flawlessly. Um, obviously, you know, there's always teething issues with a new system like this, but nothing that would have uh, uh, indicated that this, was, this sort of thing was going to happen. But we, we, we can't rule that out, and that's why the uh, military's taken the very appropriate and prudent action to implement an operational pause, both to give the crews uh, time to think about what, what's going on and also to ensure that there isn't some sort of systemic issue. But, you know, I, I, I think it, it's a great aircraft, but we, we need to remember it's a very complicated aircraft, uh, not just the back end, the mission system, but also the avionics themselves and the flying of the aircraft. This is, uh, you know, 21st century fly-by-wire technology. And, um, you know, that in and of itself is going to make the investigation um, difficult because uh, they're going to have to look at a lot of the technical data associated with the different modes that the aircraft may or may not have been in at the time of the accident. Right, which could impact the rest of the fleet and how long it's on a pause. Could this, two things, could this be an issue of training? Uh, on this brand new, well, essentially brand new piece of equipment. And what could the future, what, what is something, when something like this happens, what does it mean for the future of the military? Well, I'll, I'll address the second question first. Uh, you know, unfortunately, um, these types of things do happen. And, um, you know, the military will take a very measured, deliberate, and facts-based approach um, to this. And, um, you know, if, if there's something to learn from the investigation, they will implement those lessons immediately. And that's really one of the fundamental um, reasons why that they go to the lengths they do to do the investigation, not just to find out what happened, but to, to ensure that if, if it is um, something that can, that the, where they can change procedure, then they'll do so. As to the first part of your question, um, you know, it's... It, it really is uh, too early to speculate. And I don't think people should be thinking that that, the, that it was a training issue per se. I mean, these crews, these crews are exceptionally well-trained. They have a lot of experience. And, uh, and all the military goes to great lengths to ensure that uh, when, uh, especially when we deploy um, an asset such as this on an operational mission, that everybody is as absolutely prepared as they can be. So I, I, I don't think that's an issue. Um, that there may be there may be some procedural issues that come out of this, um, but we'll have to just wait and see. I got to leave it there this morning. Obviously, the loss of uh, six 
servicemen and women who, who take care of our country is something that you never get over. Uh, Vice Admiral Norman, good to have you on the program, sir. I appreciate it very much. Evan, if I, if I just could very quickly, this is the last Sunday in May, which is um, sadly uh, a Sunday where we celebrate today the 75th anniversary of the uh, end of the Battle of the Atlantic, where 4,600 sailors and aviators lost their lives at sea. And, and it is a poignant um, reflection that uh, we have to add six more names to that list um, this week. But I'd ask all Canadians to just reflect not just on what happened, but on the sacrifices that were made uh, during the Second World War to uh, to uh, keep uh, Canada safe and secure. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. We never forget that. Vice Admiral Mark Norman coming up. Report reopening for business. Several Canadian provinces, including Ontario and Quebec, released their plans this week for how and when their respective economies can open. But as we inch closer to the summer, will things really return to normal? Or are Canadians still a long way from seeing business as usual? The Scrum is next. Special guests John Manley and Rana Ambrose join us. Stay right here with Question Period. Today we announce our plan to reopen primary schools and childcare services. I'm not going to uh, put uh, our children in the classroom, uh, crowded classroom. Uh, I'm just not going to do it. We've got to protect our children at all costs. And we'll make that decision by the end of the, the month as we come forward. But uh, no, I, I wouldn't do that uh, here in Ontario. So is this the start of the great reopening? Over the past week, several provinces have announced plans to gradually lift COVID-19 restrictions and get their economies moving again. But as you just heard in that exchange, not all the premiers are in agreement about the best path forward. So when will Canadians begin to experience business as usual? And as the federal budget watchdog projects the national deficit could soar to get this, $252 billion this year. That's the largest in history. Ten times what the deficit was projected to be. The government continues to unveil billions of new dollars in new COVID spending. Do they need a plan to bring Canada back to balance? Let's bring in the Scrum to talk about all this. Annie Bergeron Oliver is a reporter for CTV News. She's at home. Joyce Napier is CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief. She's also in splendid isolation today, as all of us are. Our special guests today are John Manley, the former Liberal Deputy Prime Minister and former Finance Minister, and Ronna Ambrose, the former Interim Conservative Leader and the former Health Minister. Good to see everybody on a Sunday morning and hope you and your loved ones are okay. John Manley, I'll start with you. Uh, sure. Still a lot of, look, there's, COVID cases are growing, not shrinking, and provinces are starting to reopen. And uh, what do you make of it? Too early to start? I think what's happening here is that this was just not going to be sustainable very much longer, no matter what the epidemiologists were saying, for a couple of reasons. One is people want to get out, um, and some are short in Canada. So there's a, there's a strong psychological urge on the part of the population to get out. And secondly, basically most of the Canadian economy has been carried on the backs of government and that is just not sustainable, the $252 billion being an example. That, that just can't keep piling up. So I think the pressure to begin opening, regardless of what maybe some of the science says, is, is uh, irresistible. It's a tough decision, Ron Ambrose. Although in a lot of these provinces, the cases are going up, 
but the hospitals are not overwhelmed. The ICUs are not overwhelmed. That, I think, is one of becoming one of the benchmarks. What do you make of the reopening plans? I think there's a lot of lessons learned. At, at, to your point, the ICUs are not overwhelmed. The hospitals are not overwhelmed. Uh, and yet we know where the deaths are, which in so we know where we need to put our effort, but we also need to get the economy open. I mean, I think the other lesson learned is the government does not sustain the economy. A business is to sustain the economy and workers sustain the economy. And I feel like there's not a sense of urgency around this. If we don't open up soon, in a granted in a measured way, there will be no economy left. Yeah, uh, Annie, look, there's the economic push and we're going to talk about that. But people are starting to push back anyway. I mean, I, this, this past week, the city of Ottawa faced controversy after it banned people from visiting the windows at long-term care homes. But the bottom line is long-term care homes are still hot zones. What, what's been the political reaction to all that, that kind of push-pull? Well, that's absolutely right. You know, the focus needs to be on long-term care homes and getting that under control. And if the governments are not able to get that under control while the economy is reopening, then we're facing a much larger problem. But I think regardless of which province you're in, PPE needs to be a major focus. These businesses that are starting to reopen, they are required to have masks and other types of protective equipment that will keep themselves as well as their employees safe. I was talking to one business the other day who does a lot of work in the hospitals with H HVAC work and other things like that. And they said they cannot acquire the PPE because companies will not sell to anybody who is not a frontline worker or a hospital. So this company ended up having to go online, finding them randomly for double, triple, quadruple the price. So if businesses cannot get the PPE they require to open to feel confident, then maybe some won't open. Or what we could see, which is even worse, is the number of cases going up. So whatever the government does, they have to do them very carefully, removing these measures because it could backfire very quickly and cause more cases. Yeah, Joyce, we don't have the testing that we need. We don't have the vaccine. And the cost of this is mounting. The PBO says the deficit could reach $252 billion. I know that's driving the reopening question, but does the government soon have to release a plan to bring the deficit down at some point? I think it's too soon to talk about the deficit. I think we haven't even started reopening yet to see what this is going to look like. Look, there is no zero risk. There will be a risk now if we reopen. The same risk will exist three months from now. So I think the calculation the government made is we might as well reopen ever so gingerly now. Um, you know, the restrictions were so draconian that they can lift a few of them up without huge risk. Uh, we can go play outside. We can go jog. We can go bike. We can, right? Um, Nova Scotia has a wonderful double bubble. In other words, you can go from the bubble where you have been self-isolating to just a second bubble. So the, the, the steps that we are taking are low risk. There will be a risk until we find a cure. So we might as well start it now, gingerly. And plus, we don't want to start becoming a nation of snitches because that's what's happening. People are complaining a lot. People are frustrated. And there is that uh, that we should take into account as well. So, you know, I think the timing is right. Let's do this slowly and, uh, you know, let's do it together. Yeah, you're right. The nation of snitches, that East Germany kind of mentality where people are saying, hey, you're doing that. John Manley, can you put into perspective, though, what $252 billion of deficit? Again, I don't think anybody's out there saying it wasn't needed or it's not needed. It's a different question. But just, yeah. just it's a new reality. These numbers, just put it into perspective for us. It's 10, it's ten years of, of very disciplined behavior by, by federal governments. 
$25 billion a year was what was expected to be the deficit. And that was with a fair amount of discipline, possibly not enough. But this is 10 years, all gone. In one fell swoop, we moved to a, a debt to GDP ratio of over 50%, five zero, from something that was in the low 30s. Uh, we're not in the red zone, but we're, uh, we're now going to have to pay a lot more attention to this. Joyce's rights too soon. We have no idea what the economy is going to look like in 2000, in 2020 or 2021. So deficit numbers are, are almost meaningless. But that day's coming. So get prepared for spending cuts, for tax increases. That's the only way you ever get this back to balance. Rana, you, you, your word on that, on if there are plans needed, or, or are we, again, I don't know, are we reaching the limits of federal government fiscal help in this? Well, I think in some provinces we already have, and in fact, we did you know, even a month ago in some of the provinces. So there's a lot of pressure on the federal government. The federal government has been effective in pushing money out the door very quickly. But, you know, this is going to continue for quite some time. I mean, and, and when you look at EI, people are still struggling to even get EI, to even get somebody to pick up the phone. And we've got public servants that are working not 8.30 to 4.30, not on weekends, not overtime. People are waiting on the phones for days sometimes to get someone to pick up the phone and call them back. We have got to staff up these departments in some way, extend hours. People are suffering. You're starting to hear resentment from people saying public servants are not losing any of their income, they're not losing their pensions, they're not losing their, their savings, and yet private sector, millions of people in the private sector have lost everything, and they'll have no recourse when this is over. So we've got to find a way to bridge that gap because you're starting to hear resentment build uh, from the private sector feeling like they're not getting the service that they need from the public sector. All right, guys, let me take a short break. Uh, we've got lots more to discuss. First of all, the race resumes after a brief hiatus during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. The Conservative Leadership Contest is back on. Is it Peter, is the McKay O'Toole showdown still in the cards? And what about the Liberals' gun ban? Is it going to be effective? We'll talk about that next on Question Period. Stay with us. I believe it is, uh, it is not appropriate to question someone's loyalty to their country. I believe that is a, a very serious uh, accusation that you have to have some uh, very substantial evidence to make. Welcome back to the program. In case you forgot, there's still a Conservative leadership race going on. The candidates were forced to hit the pause button temporarily because of the COVID-19 pandemic. They're back in the game. Final ballots will be mailed in at the end of August. Could Derek Sloan, a Conservative MP who asked if Dr. Theresa Tan works for Canada or China, become the kingmaker? And the Liberal gun ban was announced on Friday with no parliamentary debate. Will it actually be effective in stopping gun violence like homicides? And will the Liberal gun ban become a major issue in the Conservative leadership race? The Scrum is back. Andy Bergeron Oliver, Joyce Napier, and our special guests, John Manley and Ron Ambrose. Great to have you back. Andy, I'll, I'll start with you this time. Uh, let's start on the gun ban, first of all. Um, 1,500 different weapons are banned. Conservatives like Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole and Andrew Scheer say they've A, politicized this, and B, it's the wrong thing. It will not be effective anyways. It punishes sports shooters. What do you make of the ban and the criticism? 
Well, if you ask the government, they said the reason they're doing this is because they're seeing in isolation that the number of domestic violence calls are going up and the risk for those kinds of things have not gone down at all. They say that, you know, in the light of the Nova Scotia tragedy, this is a time when they do have a lot of public support and there is a move for it. But as you're saying, conservatives are saying this is politicized. It's the wrong time. They're pointing out that the gun that the Nova Scotia man had was in fact illegal that they were likely obtained from the United States. And conservatives are saying, why are you not cracking down on the illegal weapons? The problem here for the government is that parliament is not sitting. You know, Mr. Blair has said that he is going to enact legislation at the first opportunity that will deal with the illegal seizures of guns that will give more uh, to CBSA agents to seize those guns. But unfortunately, parliament is not sitting. It won't be for a long time. So there won't be a true opportunity for debate on this legislation whenever it comes out for quite some time. And I think for the government and for the conservatives, that is a big concern. The other question that I have is, what does this grandfathering look like that the government seems to have sort of mm. hidden? It was in the order and council in one line, but they don't have a lot of answers around that. And there's still not a lot of answers around what this gun buyback program will look like, Evan. Joyce, what do you make of it all? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back to the conservative race and say, OMG, the conservative race has been totally buried by COVID-19. Um, so, you know, it is uh, Mr. Sloan got some coverage because he made some uh, comments that were somewhat outrageous. Um, so, you know, it, it seems that these candidates are desperately trying to get themselves in the news. This is what I see when I look at their reactions to this. If this is not the right time to do what the Liberals did, then when is it after a massacre? Look what uh, they did in New Zealand. Uh, they went even further. The only problem with Canada is that our parliament isn't really sitting to have an honest and real debate about this. But if you're going to look for a progressive vote uh, in the leadership candidates, I think the progressive uh, conservative candidates gave up even before uh, they put their names down. So, you know, these are the candidates that are left and these are the, this is the issue that they are going to fight. And I think right now in this particular context, they're fighting the wrong fight. John Manley, um, the, the Liberals put this out after the worst massacre in Canadian history. They've been criticized that it's not the best way to actually stop homicides, that it won't do anything, and that they're, quote, politicizing a tragedy. What do you make of it all? I think, it, I think that's a lot of nonsense. I think that, that there is absolutely no justification whatsoever for these firearms to be uh, legal in Canada in any context. And they are the weapon of choice in, in mass shootings. Um, and I think a lot of Canadians were surprised that they were, that they could be owned in Canada at all. So uh, I think stopping these out, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, border controls, controls over illegal weapons, absolutely right. But you know what, if, they're, if, they're, if they can be in the country legally, there are going to be more of them. And I don't think there's any room for it. And I think that the Conservative government of Australia, after the Tasmanian tragedy, demonstrated what pragmatic governments do in a situation like this. I think it's the right thing to do. Ron Ambrose, what's your take on it all? Well, I think, I think the fact that, that this debate is happening and the leadership debate is happening during COVID poses a real practical challenge, to Annie's point. We're not going to have a measured debate about gun control around this issue. We're going to have a very American-style debate around gun control, about gun control, where we've got one side saying that this is going to be the panacea to end crime, which is not true, and another side saying that 
you know, restricting any kind of a gun is an affront to liberty, which is also not true. We need a measured debate. We needed this to happen in Parliament, but Parliament's not sitting. And there's a real practical challenge in a leadership debate when you have COVID. People can't meet, leadership candidates can't hold town halls, they can't meet people, they can't have coffee parties. So what are they doing? They're going on social media or through emails and saying quite, you know, things that get people's attention to, uh, hmm. to, to, to your point. So it's, I think it's, we're going to see more and more um, of these kinds of commentary that really tries to grab people's attention during the leadership race, which is normal in any leadership race, but it's just been exacerbated by COVID. Well, that, and that may be true, Rana, but you know, the problem for, for your party is that you're giving up on urban Canada. Well, I, I, I disagree with you. And my point is exactly, as I said, we need to have a constructive debate to talk about who has these guns, how are they being used? What's the best way to stop crime in this country? Where are guns coming from? I mean, we know that 99, in some regions in this country, 99% of the crime is actually uh, um, because mm -hmm. of, of illegal guns coming across the U.S. border. So we need to address that. We need to address gun crime and the laws around gun crime. They need to be tougher. I mean, there's so many things that, that are part of this debate. It's much simpler than just saying we need to take 1500 kinds of guns out of the hands of law-abiding gun owners um and the other extreme saying or the other side of the but debate i mean saying, why do we, we need if we have any restrictions if we have any restrictions it's okay. it's an affront to uh, someone's right, liberty right. we need to have a a, a proper constructive debate I, about I this i think there's one i think there i think there is one question actually just one it's very simple this is not that complicated a debate why do we need okay. assault right assault right. weapons in canada <laughs> all, right, just, my point. Uh, all right hang on there's a, a passionate debate i got but unfortunately i gotta <laughs> leave it there we're going to keep, keep having it ron ambrose john manley uh annie and joyce obviously great to have all of you guys here it's been a difficult few months in canada this past week with the loss of six members of the canadian armed forces and the tragic helicopter accident in greece made things even worse we'll leave you today with this moment just a week ago where Nova Scotia native sub-lieutenant Abigail Cobra was playing the bagpipes on HMCS Fredericton as a tribute to her fellow Nova Scotians who lost their lives in that mass shooting. Only days later, she lost hers. We will never forget. Take care. We'll see you on Power Play tomorrow night at 5.